we went out hiking and we got a flat tire on top of a mountain and I had to, so I had, we like did the hike anyways, but I had to change the tire and then drive down a primitive rocky forest road that already punctured one of our real tires on, for the donut. O- on a donut for over an hour before Fuck. we like got to the highway and then had to drive another hour and a half to get to a place where a mechanic was open because it was Labor Day weekend. Nerve wracking, man. Yeah. So we like arrived at a Walmart and we were like well beyond, you know, the suggested 70 miles you're allowed to drive on a donut. I kept it under 50 miles per hour the whole time, but I was like, yeah, man, shit. And the whole time that was happening, I was watching Frederick Wiseman's Blind. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan's like, I got a flat tire. I'm like, I'm watching one of the best movies I've ever seen right now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you're on your own. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? Then crown them. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. For those potentially tuning in for the first time, The Gauntlet, our show, is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and the other two are then challenged with programming a double feature that reacts to that theme, whether it honor it or perhaps even buck up against it just a little bit. And so this week I was up to select the, the theme and every now and then as I've been um, sort of mocked for, I, I, I often look into uh, what I've been reading as a way of inspiration to supplement my own reading experience with a, with a pair of films. And that's what I did this week. I've been reading a really remarkable book called Shadow Country, written by Peter Matheson, um, ex-CIA dude who just realized America was really fucked up and committed his life to writing about the environment and indigenous people around the world. And this particular book is set in the early 1900s, well, like late 1800s, early 1900s, and chronicles the story of Edgar Watson, who is a desperado slash outlaw slash potential serial killer or Charles Manson type figure, all depending on how you look at it. But the book itself, set in the Florida Everglades, is also primarily a look at what our country is and this idea of the swamp and the Everglades as a metaphor for the shadow that hangs over our country of race and generational trauma. It's really just this incredible, all-encompassing, amazing book. So anyways, I was really taken by the environment depicted in it. Um, I haven't been to the Everglades in a very, very long time. Went as a kid and saw a lot of gators with my dad and had a ton of fun. And revisiting the book brought back a lot of those memories. So I said, let's double down. Take me to the swamp. Let's, uh, let's get lost in the in the mangrove or just the, the the mud, you know, let's get some mosquitoes off of uh, eating us alive, you know. And I got to say, you, you both more than delivered. It was exactly what I was looking for, both in terms of its location and the types of things it's thinking about. Our country and our swamp, 
you know? Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about both of them. I'm going to have Andy take the lead on what he brought. He brought the earlier of the two films. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about your pick. Yeah, you said Swamp, and there was really uh, only one choice for me at, uh, at the end of it all. You wanted swamps, so I thought I'd bring you a film that pretty much, you know, for its entire runtime, takes place in the swamp. Uh, a film that is just wet and oozy and gross and miserable. That would be Walter Hill's 1981 film, Southern comfort. This is a movie that concerns a group of Louisiana National Guardsmen who are being sent out on a sort of war game maneuver in the the swamps, the marshes uh, outside of Shreveport where they filmed the movie. And their job is pretty much to just move through this space, to get from one side of the swamp to the other. Uh, they're not even issued live ammunition because this is purely uh, uh, an exercise for them. So the rifles are all loaded with blanks. In fact, there's a very amusing shot uh, to open the film of a group of these uh, National Guardsmen lining up to, to fire their M16 rifles. And uh, Walter Held does this really cheeky thing with a telephoto lens where these soldiers are shooting directly at the camera and then we see a couple guys just walk directly in front of the line of fire unharmed. So, <laughs> so we know that these guns are loaded with blanks. Uh, it is set in 1973, which is a, a very loaded year for this uh, this this film. Uh, it is the year that the United States of America withdrew from Vietnam. Well, sort of withdrew from Vietnam. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but along their their path, these uh, these sort of boneheaded Louisiana National Guardsmen come across a, a group of Cajuns uh, at a certain point. They, they find themselves at, a, at an impasse. There's a bunch of water that doesn't seem to be on their maps. And they, they figure, well, we'll just take these canoes laying around here at this, this empty poacher's camp and we'll just borrow them, you know? Well, you know, they, they, there's a reason why they're in a hurry, I should point out. And that's because uh, Keith Carradine's character, Spencer, has uh, lined up a little treat for these guys at the end of their mission, and that's to uh, be met outside of the swamp by a group of uh, sex workers. So these guys are in a bit of a hurry, and they decide to grab the canoes, and as they're crossing this this sort of marshy lake swamp muck thing in these borrowed canoes, the, the owners appear on the other side of the lake. And just as they plan to sort of turn around and clear up this little you know, kerfluffle and bring the canoes back. One of the guardsmen decides it would be funny to unload his blanks at the Cajuns. And this then triggers the ultimate conflict of the movie is the Cajuns fire back, but this time with live rounds, killing their sergeant 
sending the guardsmen into a desperate panic and flight as they are then beset upon from all sides by these Cajuns who are now hunting them mercilessly through the swamps. I think it's a it's an amazing film. It's it's one of my favorite films. It's a desperate tale of survival. It's it's sort of got everything I want in a movie. A bunch of guys in military uniforms in a desperate situation, screaming, shouting, and swearing at each other as they all die empty and hopeless deaths. <laughs> you know, it is my wheelhouse. Precisely. Um, I, I really just wanted to selfishly revisit it, you know? I mean, aside from the fact that it is one of the swampiest movies ever made, uh, I, I just think it is, uh, it is one of Walter Hill's best films and, and one of my favorites. You know, re-watching it, I, I realized, Marsh, you know, our film that we, we made together, uh, I realized watching it this time around, like how much uh, this movie, like, sort of haunts what we did. Our, our subconscious was <laughs> was so drawn to to so many things that take place in this film. So there's a there's a sort of like nostalgic element there as well because uh, it was a, a big influence on on I think both of us. Uh, I know definitely on me, so so yeah, I just wanted to to get back with all the guys, Keith Carradine, Powers Booth, of course Fred Ward, and Peter Coyote, and and just be enveloped by that that amazing, beautiful, haunting Rye Cooter score, and uh, and just get nasty. So so that's the film that I brought, Southern Comfort. Thank you. I had a lot of fun revisiting it. It had been a long time since I'd seen it, and I was also really thrilled when Marsh selected his film because I had never seen it, and it was one that he's long been championing uh, and wanting me specifically to see, so I was glad to have the excuse this week to, to dig in. So, Marsh, what did, what did you bring? As I often do, I took my cue from my uh, programming partner for the week, Andy didn't hesitate to uh, select Southern Comfort, and I was very happy about it because, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies as well. And I also thought <laughs> thought about Orders while rewatching it. Uh, again, in, in a way that, yeah, we weren't consciously thinking about it, but I think we were subconsciously definitely thinking about it in retrospect. Anyway, I wanted to, you know, link up our, our film somehow in a meaningful way. And, you know, if you're not looking at a swamp outside of the United States, you're then looking at Florida, Georgia, Louisiana. You know, you have pretty classic options. And knowing that Southern Comfort was in the bayou, I decided to lean in that direction. And so the film I chose is In the Electric Mist from 2009, directed by French filmmaker Bertrand Tavernier. 
And this film is a something of a co-production uh, between France and the United States. It was uh, financed by mostly by a French company, but produced by an American company who had recently worked with Tommy Lee Jones on the three burials of Melchiades Estrada, among other things. The film is an adaptation of the best-selling crime novel by James Lee Burke, who uh, himself is a resident of New Iberia, Louisiana, where the film takes place. Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones plays his fictional character, Dave Robichaux. Dave is a ex Vietnam veteran, ex-New Orleans homicide detective, ex-alcoholic, now uh, turning in some sheriff's detective duties in his sleepy parish where he runs a bait and sandwich shop with his partner Batiste. Uh, they also rent boats, although that's not really a big part of the movie, but just know that that's part of his setup, his cozy little swamp setup, you know? This is a guy who's seen a lot of shit in his life, and he's got his little compound with his wife, Bootsy, and their daughter, adopted Salvadorian daughter, Alifair, uh, and he is this kind of, you know, brooding detective, and uh, it's very much sort of Tommy Lee Jones off, you know, hot off the heels of No Country, among other things. And so mm -hmm. you can imagine why this was greenlit for a variety of reasons. And the film, you know, despite all that and the great talent assembled to make the film, there was uh, irreconcilable differences uh, between Tavernier and the producer, Michael Fitzgerald, which resulted uh, in two cuts being made. There was an American cut that was released straight to DVD, and then there's the French cut, the director's edition, which is about 15 minutes longer, or 10 to 15 minutes longer. Uh, but beyond that, it's a complete recut of the movie. It was... Tavernier got the dailies and cut the film himself with his editors in France. So there, it's not just, it's longer, it's not an added scene. It it's is a completely a, different movie. It is a completely different film. So uh, if you're, we're going to be, of course, talking about the Tavernier cut, you know, the director's vision. And uh, yeah, the, the story itself uh, concerns the murder uh, of a sex worker in a particularly brutal fashion. And her body, of course, is found in the swamp where many bad things happen. And this investigation, which Dave is a part of, uh, dovetails into another investigation of another swamp crime committed in the past of Dave's childhood. And so it really becomes a dual investigation. Uh, and I should mention as well that I think one of the reasons perhaps Tavernier uh, was attracted to this particular book, uh, he's on the record being a big fan of the novels, but this particular book also centers around a Hollywood film production that is being shot nearby in New Iberia. And so Dave gets mixed up with some Hollywood stars and mobsters and all uh, all that other good stuff that we will try to uh, 
to untangle. It's a, it's a very dense film. It's uh, very heavy on procedure in a way, but it's also very heavy on character. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really great movie. What could I say? And I'm so excited uh, to talk about it with you. So uh, yeah, that's In the Electric Mist. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, there are a lot of things that these movies share and have in common, but I think one thing I just wanted to sort of come straight out of the gate with was just reflecting on how sturdy both of these films are in their respective genres and how pleasant the the viewing uh, of both of these films are in, in very different ways of course you know southern comfort is quite tense and there's there's a lot of fear in it and at the same time in the electric mist in certain respects felt like a clint eastwood movie to me where it's very graceful it's very elegant it's very relaxed you know, when you're following Tommy Lee Jones, who is really taking his time, but treating everything very seriously, it evoked that sense of like a late Clint Eastwood film to me and just the gliding camera. The sadness that kind of pervades almost everything in the movie. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I agree that it is a very dense film and surprisingly plotty, but the act of watching it, I found myself almost not taking notes on the plot because I was just along for this very episodic ride. And I mean, yeah, it's similar for Southern Comfort. I was jotting down, you know, key things, key deaths, you know, things that really struck me. But again, in both films, they really grab you and almost lull you into your, their rhythms where you have to completely give yourself up to to both of them and they're just yeah they're workman productions that i really appreciated on a, on a formal level yeah i mean i think we have on the one hand uh, a, a great genre master in walter hill at the peak of his powers i mean this is not long after the warriors which i think of course like many people's one of his best movies and this is a lot of the same crew it's the same cinematographer it's the same similar setup right it's got a, a somewhat of an aristotelian unity concept of traversing mm -hmm. time and space more or less in real time there's a lot of sweet dissolves you know we're not uh, seeing everything but yeah it has that feeling of of traversing through space and Hill, uh, with his cast, is is firing on all cylinders. And and in spite of that, it's also kind of an arty film, you know, in ways that you don't think about Walter Hill as being that artful. But I think he's on. I think he's like intoxicated by the swamp in this film. I was really like. You know, there's some cutaways throughout the film just to empty spaces of the swamp. And I'm thinking, like, is this Walter Hill? Is he really doing this? You know, it's been a while since I'd seen it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's kind of a perfect fit for what's going on in the Tavernier film. Um, and I think it's interesting that Tavernier is like, you know, kind of known for being uh one of the great French cinephiles of all time, you know, more even more so than than a than a filmmaker. But he's not the kind of filmmaker who explicitly shows his influences. And this is something he's talked about a lot. He says, when I'm working, I am not a movie buff. I am worrying about logistics, you know? And his films don't really ape the style of his favorite directors. He has his own kind of style. And it's pitched 
somewhere in between classicism and a European art film. And mm-hmm. so I think In the Electric Mist is, is a great marriage of American pulp, you know, paperback, James Lee Burke shit, and then Tavernier falling in love with the location, falling in love with the characters. I mean, he let Tommy Lee Jones rewrite scenes in this movie. He worked with James Lee Burke on the script. He went to Louisiana and just like hung out with him on several occasions and worked with the script uh, with him, you know? So he was just like, he became Louisiana pilled, you know? (laughs) And that's evident in the film. All of the actors are from more or less from the South and many of them are from Louisiana. And there's a lot of really like dead accurate uh, language and, and, you know, accent work in this movie that goes way beyond uh, anything uh, a Hollywood production would even, you know, touch. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Southern Comfort simply by the nature of having Brian James as the one-armed Cajun man, who, Brian James is always a, a welcome presence always. in any genre film, but I will, you know, I'll just say as much as I love this movie, I, I think it was a little bit, of, maybe it's up for discussion, I think he's a little bit of a misfire, I never really believe him as a Cajun man, especially as a one-armed Cajun man, because it, whenever he's running, it's very clear that he's got an arm and a sling under his big, heavy coat. You've seen Cabin Boy, you you know he has two arms. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it also made me realize, like, um, on a certain level, how how ridiculous or pointless it seems to to try to tie up a one armed man. You know, to try to secure one arm to his body. Because well, that's the same point Coach makes. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like. <laughs> It, it seems to me so easy to just slip one arm out, you know, because it's just tied around his waist. Like, that's right. the only thing it's holding it together. Like, if you can't tie the two arms together, it doesn't seem, you know, <laughs> that secure. And I, I kept thinking that throughout the film, but not really. Well, look what point, happened to you Coach, know? you know. <laughs> look what happened. Yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here, <laughs> well, I guess, you know, another really meaningful connection and could be in, uh, something we talk about initially here between both of these films is how both of them in their own unique ways are haunted by the specter of a previous war in electric mist two wars, because there is the Vietnam connection between both films, obviously 1973 and Southern comfort and the experiences in the swamp are very clearly an allegory for fighting specifically the Viet Cong and those tactics and invading a territory and taking what's not yours and in The Electric Mist, Tommy Lee Jones's character is a Vietnam veteran who was also then haunted by the ghosts of Confederate soldiers. But I thought it was interesting that, albeit different genres in a similar location, they both have that specter of war that's very present throughout most of the scenes in both films. Well, it should be pointed out, you know, that Walter Hill has been on the record you know, explicitly as saying this was not a Vietnam allegory for him. (laughs) Give me a break, but yeah. yeah, Well, right. I mean, like, you know, I mean, again, it's like death of the author stuff, you know, like, again, the year that it's set is, is like impossible to miss understanding history and dates, the, the, the design, the look of the uniforms, uh, the, the, 
comparison of our swamplands to the jungles of Vietnam. Like, it's impossible to miss all those things. But, you know, Hill was very, you know, direct in saying it's it's not a Vietnam allegory and, and you know, going on about that. Even making that clear, he said, to, to the actors, you know. But, I mean, the, the, the connection is there to be made. And so I, I would say that, you know, um, what Hill, I think, you know, in his mind was trying to do uh, in a similar way with the Warriors is, is make this uh, somewhat timeless, somewhat classical. You know, mm-hmm. he has said it's, it's really about all wars, any wars, uh, and actually working with his cinematographer, Andrew Laszlo, who, who Marsh mentioned, who shot, you know, some of his other great films, uh, their inspiration actually started with the Korean War and a book of photographs from the Korean War. So, so to again, I think, you know, kind of in the way that you were describing in The Electric Mist, I, I feel like, yes, Southern Comfort is, you know, Vietnam does haunt it. We we can't escape that. But but Hill's actually striving for a, an even more, I think, uh, I guess I should say, a broader connection to to war and to the the folly of of sending people to a place that they have no business being in, basically. I really had that feeling this time around. You know, it'd been a while since I'd seen it. And and I thought about that a lot through this viewing. I was thinking to myself, like, what what makes it specifically Vietnam versus any situation like this, right? Specifically any colonial situation or colonial policing. Uh, and that, of course, connects it then to the American South and their troubles, you know, because mm-hmm. that's obviously a, a huge element in both films. So I do think it, yeah, I think it works on a, a mythic level and it works on a kind of, yeah, archetypal historical level. I mean, what happens when, you know, people fuck up other people's shit and land, right? Like, mm-hmm. we know what happens. Yeah. You know? I think the point for Hill, too, is that, you know, part of his reluctance of really directly connecting it to Vietnam is, is you know, I think from, from his mind, he's worried about people seeing it as, as just a condemnation of the Vietnam War and not sure. war in general, right? Uh, uh, America's war machine throughout the years, you know, rather than pointing to to the one conflict of, of, oh, well, we got that one wrong. Hill's trying to say, no, like, this is what happens, you know, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Korea, whether it's the fucking Pacific of, of World War II, you know, this is what happens when, when sort of like arrogant systems of power send uniformed men into places that that don't belong to them. And then when they act as if they do have some sort of ownership of it or, or you know, control over that land, over the earth, because of their uniforms and their weapons and this, that, and the other, like, uh, is it any wonder, is it any surprise that these things happen and have happened and will continue to happen, whether it's Louisiana or the Mekong Delta or 
Baghdad or wherever, right? Or the American Southwest, because I was even thinking that this film, surprisingly, very specifically with what you were addressing, has a lot in common with Walter Hill's own Geronimo. You know, mm-hmm. I think they're preoccupied with a lot of similar things. Yeah. This dude loves John Ford. He loves Howard Hawks, you know, like he's seen the cavalry trilogy a hundred thousand times. Probably Both of our directors you know? this week have. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess I would just respond to that by saying, I don't think that those things have to be mutually exclusive that this film, you know, as much as Walter Hill is claiming that it is, more broadly about the American imperial project or just war in general. I still think that by localizing it a bit with some of those really charged images with Vietnam just helps supplement that broader argument because it is, it's impossible to miss, you know, he's got it in 73. They bring up Vietnam. There are moments where one character in particular is killed with a trap that is resembles a trap I've seen at the like coochie tunnels in Vietnam, the specifically the the big wooden like the spikes that like jump out from the swamp and impale mm-hmm. him. You know, his whole body becomes impaled in that. And it's like a primitive I think Rambo. I think we saw one of those two yeah. recently in uh in Last Blood. You know? That's true. That's true. And Rambo plied his uh, trade in in Vietnam after all. Yes. But I guess then I do think that relates to in the electric mist because there is Tommy Lee Jones reflecting on his past in Vietnam. But again, it's all supplemented by these ghosts of Confederate soldiers that he starts to see with more regularity as the film progresses. And that was something that I'm curious. I'd I'd really like to check out the American re-edit of In the Electric Mist, because I have to assume that that must be some of the stuff that was either just condensed or dealt with a little bit differently because that was truly unique. A lot of, of that material. I mean, uh, like Marsh, I, I had seen this before and I had, you know, my first encounter with the film was that version, the version that was like straight to straight to home video, uh, you know, in whenever it came out, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. To whatever. Anyway. Uh, and actually a lot of that stuff is still in there, but I, 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 it's, it's treated differently. I think is a big, a big component of it, you know, like how it's handled Mm -hmm. because that's still in the, the American version. It's toned down a little bit. I think some of the sequences are shorter. Um, but as Marsh said, I mean, like, I was blown away rewatching it because I was like, and I had actually rewatched this movie, uh, the the American version, uh, last year, and and it was like I was seeing this movie for the first fucking time because I I basically was. I mean, yeah. this was like honestly, I cannot stress how differently they feel even in spite of the fact that it's like, I knew what was going to happen. I was still like, whoa, like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know? And like so much of it, I think in this version to me is Marsh said in his intro. I I think this version becomes so much more uh, a character piece than a pure procedural. Like the American cut just feels like it's, it's so obvious. They were just trying to like, play up the the crime stuff mm-hmm. and let's tone down 
the 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 sort of more philosophical, psychological uh, sort of meanderings that actually make this such a pleasant experience. You know, there's less mm-hmm. of an elegiac tone in the American cut, I found. This time around, I, I was just like, this is such like a sad and beautiful journey into this space and these people and how they all interact. And and especially with some of the side characters who are actually fleshed out, I felt, a bit more, or the relationships have a different sort of like tone this time around, I felt. Yeah, that's what I had assumed, and I'm extremely... I'm just generally extremely curious about the differences between the cuts because, again, having not seen it, the only thing I could assume about the way the Confederates are utilized in the American cut would maybe be that it's it's just such an oddity, you know? Like, oh, this presence of ghosts, like how odd to like give extra flavor to this film. I'm General John Bell Hood, commander of the Texas Brigade, commander of the 4th Texas Cavalry, the 5th Texas Cavalry, in the 17th Texas Infantry. How do you do? Because I was so taken by how somber and serious their presence is in the Tavernier cut and how the film isn't constantly making us call into doubt Tommy Lee Jones's perspective on this. I mean, maybe a little bit because there is an element of drug use at one point where he has like LSD in a Coke that's given to him. Dr. Um, Pepper. Dr. Pepper. Dr. Come Pepper, on, stop yourself. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he has about a hundred of them in the movie. Right. <laughs> but no, I was still like, that was something that was, I was so taken by was the fact that it is, it's so somber. It's so elegiac and it, it's not something that's just given to us as like a bit of like, odd southern flavor you know that's one element specifically that you're talking about that is for me it felt radically different this time around so ryan is alluding to a scene in which you know amidst the investigation at a certain point tommy lee jones's character is like dosed and i i don't know if you remember this marsh but i felt in the in the american cut uh that whole sequence plays out very differently and to me, in the American cut, it's almost as if uh, it's presented as like a flashback. Like he doesn't actually get dosed. And it's like, this was when he was drunk. This was when he was like drinking. And yes. that explains why he's seeing the, the Confederates. They try to link that more to like, in the American way of, of sort of like justifying these visions as being like, well, when he was an alcoholic, he saw, you know, elephants talking to him. He was having mm. conversations with General John Bell Hood or whatever. But this time around, they aren't, I mean, as they populate the film, they aren't all linked to that. I mean, he's sober as a judge when he is conversing, you know, aside from the moment where he is dosed, that, that begins it. From that point on, like, he's just... Talking to John Bell Hood. I mean, know? depending right. on how much LSD it was, he could be just having like one long, strange trip. I you guess know? So, yeah. <laughs> a little after effects there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I think our first encounter with them is as presumably extras for the film when Tommy Lee Jones visits the set and sees the extras wandering through the woods during the production, which was also something that I really enjoyed and I'm glad 
Bertrand was also somewhat obsessed with because it reminded me of the great Louisiana author Walker Percy, who has a couple of books I've read of his, both The Moviegoer and Lancelot. Uh, And Lancelot specifically deals with a lawyer having to struggle alongside all of the, the, just these Hollywood gangster types, you know, that are messing things up in his town, shit he has to deal with, also driving around in hot rods like Peter Sarsgaard in the electric mist and just destabilizing, you know, the locals um, while also trying to bring them in. So I did really enjoy the presence of the film set um, and especially John Goodman as the, the you know, film producer mogul uh, in the film. Yeah, Julie Balboni. Julie Balboni, isn't that his name? Julie Balboni. He's yeah, got an amazing I'm... nickname, by the way. Baby feet. <laughs> it's yeah. so gross. John Goodman with a huge goatee. You love to see that kind oh of thing. Oh my god, yeah. That looks like it was almost improperly attached to his face simply because of his jowls, you know? Like he has so much like excess like skin in this movie that it almost feels as though the the goatee was like placed on slightly off. Um, I love the introduction, the first image we have of John Goodman sitting in a big pool on a giant like inflatable chair as he like hefts himself out of it and into the water it's not just any pool either it's a motel pool they're Mm. having a little like party at a low rent motel um and i think that's a really nice touch you know the 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 mafia of louisiana depicted as yeah just like these gross idiots just white trash yeah just white trash (laughs) you know um and it's you know it's god there's so many characters and it's so rich, you know, I don't even I don't even know where to uh, where to begin with it. You know, I know when we were watching it last night, Molly even mentioned this is like a Louisiana inherent vice just in terms of the web of characters that arrive and how much information we get scene by scene. Yeah, because we should clarify, I guess, you know, like D- Dave is put on to Goodman's character, Julie, uh, because he runs girls, right? So there's a possible connection between him and Cherry LeBlanc, the murdered 19-year-old. Uh, but he's not really a film mogul. He's a gangster who has money tied up in films you yeah, know yeah I, uh the because we meet the real producer of the film within the film and it's john sales mr goldman is mr julius balboni producing this film producing yeah. i must have really fucked up in my previous incarnation maybe maybe i sunk the titanic or uh assassinated archduke ferdinand i am the only producer so mr balboni's lying Mr. Balboni is investing some of his money in a motion picture. Is that illegal? Congratulations. You're in business with the man that hung Fluvio over near his cousin up by his colon on a meat hook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because, of course, uh, Robichaud knows Julie because he's a local and they grew up together. They played baseball together. And it's very, yes, very pointedly and very specifically, they played baseball together. And this is kind of, of course, like a recurring thing uh, in Robichaux novels. Uh, And I only know this not having read them, but having seen Heaven's Prisoners. And in Heaven's Prisoners, one of the heavies, played by Eric Roberts with Cornrows, is also a childhood friend of Dave. So, like, you get the formula. It's like he knows about 
people around here. Everyone knows Robichaux. People in New Orleans, gangsters are complaining about him, you know? Uh, everyone knows him and he knows everyone in this really interesting way. But of course, like, in the context of In the Electric Mist, one of the things I was thinking about is how, like, everybody knows everything in the town, but it's, like, very much along racial lines. And Robichaux is a guy who crosses that line in his daily life, you know? Robichaux uh, believes in, you know, some kind of, like, goodwill toward man, common decency, uh, kind of, like, moral compass, right? And that's really when, you know, the flashback to his past comes in, is uh, Sarsgaard as Elrod, you know, the movie star, says, uh, I know where a body is in the swamp. It's got these chains around it. And all of a sudden, Robichaux's like, I fucking know what that is. Mm -hmm. I, I saw that shit. Well, and I think that's really where the the haunted aspect of the film comes in, specifically you know, for Robichaux is because, you know, as you've described it, like he, he is a man that, that wants to do good, uh, you know, good for the people around him. But I think so much of, of, you know, in, in revisiting the past and the ghosts and, and John Bell Hood's ghosts specifically, uh, so much of it for him is also, rooted in this deep sense of guilt, yeah. you know, of being a Southern man, of growing up in this place where, you know, black men could be shot down in the swamps and it wouldn't even make the paper, you know, and, and witnessing something like that and, and being powerless, helpless, or otherwise apathetic to it at that time. And now, much later in his life, reflecting on all of those crimes, the grand crime of the South, racism, the Civil War, lost causes, fighting uh, for something that is inherently, like, bad, you know? Or as John Bell Hood would say, venal and evil, right? And and it's him trying to come to terms with that. And I think measure himself now. Can I ever do enough to make up for these past crimes? And that's what pushes him to the point at times where he almost becomes like dirty hairy. Yeah. I mean, like, yes, he is a guy with a moral compass, but boy, he, uh, he's outside the law. <laughs> yeah. He roughs up a lot of people in this movie. I forgot like how, how violent he is at times. There's several people. planted pieces as well, you know, yeah. by his, like, you know, his friend who works for him and himself, you know, the, the law and morality, clearly are not the same thing to Dave Robichaux, you know, because uh, he does go, he does go dirty Harry. I mean, but yeah, it's like, that's, that's who he is. Right. And, and one of his friendships that is sort of brought to the fore in the film as a result of the past being dredged up is Hogman, the musician played by, Buddy Guy from Louisiana. And Buddy Guy basically tells him, like, Who care what's his name? Maybe he got what he asked for. I say, past is past, and don't be messing in it. You wanting me? What was the white woman's name? 
I gotta go start my beans now. And of course, he learns very quickly. It's like, yeah, of course, there was like an interracial relationship at the core of like all this violence that happened. And he's just like, leave it. Everyone he talks to, leave it in the past, leave it in the past. But right, Dave feels a some kind of obligation, moral or otherwise, to you know to solve, crack the case or whatever. Which, being an eyewitness to, uh, turns out not to be that hard. You know, at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that's also what like kind of propelled him to. You know, that combined with his Vietnam service, I think he makes clear throughout the film is is part of why he spent a good portion of his life, like, hiding inside of a bottle. Uh, and it's it's only, like, now, later in his life, that he has this clarity, the clarity of the ex-alcoholic, or I guess the, the alcoholic, That's that's always, you know, this close to, to, to taking that drink, to... to you know, getting off the wagon or whatever. But, but yeah, I mean, like, that's it for him. It's, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a journey to, to face things and to make sense of things that he otherwise has tried through very self-destructive ways to, you know, leave buried, to leave rotting in a swamp somewhere. In the ancient world, people placed heavy stones on the graves of their dead so their souls would not wander and afflict the living. I always thought this was simply the practice of superstitious and primitive people. But I was about to learn that the dead can hover on the edge of our vision with the density and luminosity of mist. And their claim on the earth can be as legitimate and tenacious as our own. I'm glad you brought up Buddy Guy as well, because that has to be one of the all-time pleasantly bad performances in a film. Just every moment he's on screen, is it's so wonderful having him there, and he's clearly trying his best. The line readings are a little stilted, but the presence is great. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's why I'm saying the uh, a remarkably and pleasantly bad performance. Because yeah. yeah, by all standards of acting, he is he's extremely stiff. It almost feels like he's reciting the lines from a card just off camera. But just the gravitas that Buddy Guy brings to a film, you know, just his presence there, feeling him, and then that was even something I was thinking about as a funny link between the films and their respect of the milieu. We have Buddy Guy, the musician, being honored in this film, and then Ry Cooter's score coming in to give so much flavor for, you know, the, the swamps in Southern Comfort. Well, another, like, spectral connection then for me is, is you know, in, in just sort of bringing up Buddy Guy, Buddy Guy and invoking Ry Cooter and this, this strange crossover, like, I couldn't help watching this cut, you know, the Tavernier cut. Uh, how much it kind of reminded me, not of, like, you mentioned Clint Eastwood, but I, I, I felt so much more like I was watching kind of like, you know, a, a Vim Vendors film. Sure. Like, it reminded me a lot of, like, Vim Vendors sort of, you know, European outsider's view on the American South or the American West, you know, where it's, 
on the one hand, like, you know, fascinated by characters and fascinated by authenticity of space, of place, of people, and also like elevating it still to this kind of like mythic status, you know, this kind of almost mythological quality that, that, that kind of washes over everything. This, this, this foreigner's view of things, this foreigner's fascination Mm -hmm. with the, the sort of like detritus of, of these areas, you know, New Orleans, for all of its sort of like mention in this film, kind of just like sort of looms in the background. He's so much more interested in in like the roads that link spaces, the 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 bayou, the swamp, the sky, the different colors and tones to the the stormy nights that you'll find in this area. And and again, as you mentioned, like the kind of just general pacing, like it's not in a rush as the American cut was to just be like, let's give them a a good old procedural, you know, but, but yeah, there's a crime here and we'll get to that. Don't worry. We'll wrap it all up when we need to. But, but how about just like sitting on a porch with buddy guy for a little while, you know, the same way that Vim vendors will just like have musicians or people, directors, actors, just kind of like hanging out for a minute. And yeah, it's hard not to recognize who they are, but that's not really the point, you know? It's it's so much more about, like, the experience of being in this area with the kinds of people who live there. One, you know, on that note, one thing that I think connects these films is their evocative soundscapes and dedication to, like, bringing these locations to life. I mean, the Southern Comfort soundtrack is incredibly active, and we barely see animals, but we hear them. You know, this sort of, like, menacing uh, swamp soundscape. And I discovered, uh, to Tavernier's credit, and, and speaking of, like, going for that kind of flavorful authenticity for sound, he hired Paul Ledford, who is Soderbergh's best friend from childhood who did all his sound from Louisiana. And Ah. Ledford, uh, Tavernier praised him to the fucking high hills, you know, being like, this guy is a sound genius. And when he went to France to do his own cut, Ledford was sending him hours of wild tracks and the sounds of Louisiana. So again, I mean, just so much care put into what is ostensibly, yeah, a policier with all this atmosphere. Yeah, know? the texture. It's its like both of these films, you know, the, the texture of both of them uh, does have so much attention to detail. I mean, I think another big connection for these films, uh, you know, I mean, we've kind of alluded to it. We've mentioned it. We've discussed it with... <laughs> Within the Electric Mist, you know, and it's sort of supernatural quality. But I think, and there's this almost supernatural feeling I get when I watch Southern Comfort. You know, and I think that that again goes back to to Walter Hill wanting to to make this feel not just as a Vietnam allegory, but as something that can leave time, leave the specificity of of time in the year that it's set in. And and one thing that he and his cinematographer worked really hard at, again, if you want to talk about 
you know, attention to detail and atmosphere and texture. Uh, I, I read a thing with Andrew Laszlo where he was saying, you know, a, a big aspect of the look, uh, the feeling that they wanted to create in the swamp was actually trying to block out uh, a lot of the like direct natural light as possible. So they apparently like would, would constantly be hanging up silks and tarps and bringing in more smoke to, to give the swamp an, an extra sort of uh, ethereal quality to it. Like, you know, you, you more or less kind of, I think, introduce this idea, Marsh, but it's like, yes, we know that they've been in the swamp for whatever, a day, a night, two days, whatever it is. But really, when you're out there with them, because of this, like, this look where we can't really see the sun or, or see its, like, actual, like, you know, traversing of the sky, like, and, and because of those dissolves, it's like, have they been in there for, for days, weeks, months, like years? Like it gets to me too this kind of, uh, yeah, like, like phantasmagorical level of, of, of space and, and how these guys sort of quite literally get get lost in it you know the real the first scene of the movie after the credits and like opening and they go in uh the sergeant just goes either this map is wrong or all of a sudden i can't find my way around yeah and you're just like oh yeah right like <laughs> it, it it's just unexplainable you know like they're just like lost in this mythic labyrinth yeah i mean uh keith carradine's character like as they are like on their journey as they're like preparing to enter he says something like you know off to the primordial swamp and again you know why for me like this film particularly was like i have to pick southern comfort when you mention swamps and like looking at swamps because that's exactly what both of these films play with the idea of the swamp as this kind of primeval space. You know, I, I often think swamps are like in nature, like the most Gothic like form yes. of, of nature. Right. And like, when you think about a swamp, what it looks like, what it feels like, it's like, it seems like this really kind of impossible space. <laughs> it's like, there's water fucking everywhere. It's like, is this water or is this a forest, right? It's like, it's both. It's like they're up to their knees in water, but they're surrounded by fucking trees. Like swamps are one of the worst places to find yourself caught in. Caught in. It's, it's one of the hardest landscapes to actually survive in, like for humans anyway, right? I, there's a great show I, I, I love. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Uh, it's not on TV anymore, but it's called Survivor Man. Uh, and this guy, Les, this, this weird Canadian survival expert, like he would just put himself into an area and then be like, here's what it's like to try to survive here for seven days. And like, aside from the desert island or the ocean, those were like two of the worst ones for him. Like the swamp for him was like, this is fucking horrible. It's awful. You're always wet. You're always like muggy. There's bugs, there's creatures, there's things crawling underneath you, around you. I mean, like it's this ooze that just life somehow, you know, beyond our understanding just springs up from and yes and yet everything in there is just trying to kill us to say nothing of course of the 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 rabid cajuns who are also trying to you know <laughs> gut you like a fish you know yeah but it's 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 i think something that we see in both films because the swamp also you know unearths 
these things, bodies, creatures, people in, in the electric mist, you know, I think they both play with the idea specifically of the swamp as this kind of strange, liminal, choking, oppressive space. Yeah, it, it's a space that has no solid ground to stand on. And because of that, it becomes nearly impossible to navigate. You talking about the way that light was controlled in Southern Comfort made me think about a moment where that unstuck in time quality really clicked for me when they mentioned we've only got th about 30 minutes of daylight left. And that was one of the first references to time. And I remembered thinking while looking at it, it really doesn't look like that. Mm -hmm. And even if that was just, you know, like kind of a production mistake, they couldn't really film that late in the day. But it really, the light did not look like they only had 30 minutes left. But I walked away from it thinking that it gave it this fascinating quality of completely being unstuck in time. That not only are we lost in this terrain, we're lost in our, our in ourselves and this world, you know, and just like the amount of secrets that are underneath this ground that could swallow us up at any moment at some points literally in these films is, is ever present. Yeah, the swamp is a place of secrets and it's also a place of horrors. I mean, I think that's, you know, the typical trope, you know, I should say, uh, I almost picked Jean Renoir's swamp water, but didn't. So I just watched it anyway. Uh, and worth noting similar attitude to swamps in that one, because Dana Andrews is going to go into the swamp to find his dog. And the whole town is like, you will die. If you go into the swamp, you're dead. You idiot. Uh, and he does, and he discovers Walter Brennan, who is impossibly alive and living in the swamp. And he's like, I've been bitten by snakes ten times or whatever. And you're like, yeah, this man is like a miracle of science is the only yeah, reason. Yeah, he just like develops an immunity to cotton mounts. It's insane. I watched it too, and I was thinking about how one thing that really separated these that film from, from these films was there's a real heavy presence on the wildlife in the swamp in Jean Renoir's Swamp Water. And it was kind of fun watching that before both of these films, because especially in Southern Comfort, I was thinking about the absence of wildlife, at least living wildlife. Whenever we see animals in <laughs> Southern Comfort, they're, they're dead. It's like strung up, you know, strung up rabbits, other game that the Cajuns have have gone after. But while watching Swamp Water, I kept thinking about how, you know, throughout there are cottonmouths that could bite you at any moment. There are gators and crocodiles swimming through the swamp, you know? So not only will the swamp suck you up, but the wildlife, what, what's local there can, I mean, easily kill you. It's a really dangerous area to be in because of the animals, as opposed to maybe being in a mountain where you might encounter a bear or something, but it's like the threat of the wildlife in the swamp is so intense. And I thought it was interesting that in Southern Comfort, that quality is taking a back seat because it is the threat of the unseen men out there. And I think that has to have been a choice. I mean, it obviously wasn't written in that there would be animals, but I think it highlights the fact that it's not just, you know, crocodiles that are peering at you throughout the swamp, but at any moment, any of these Cajun men could be zeroing in on you and you're never safe and you've always got eyes, you know, like locked in on you. Well, I think both films 
in their own ways are, are sort of trying to make the point that like, you know, man is the, is the most treacherous creature you'll find in nature. Really? You know, I mean, animals are, are going to do what animals do, but, but you know, the, the deceit, the, the, the real, like, you know, nastiness is, is what we as humans like do, to each other outside of, of necessity, but for, you know, want or personal gain or desire or, you know, to, to cover up a crime or, or whatever it is. Although I would say that there is one pretty ferocious and uh, terrifying animal attack in Southern Comfort. The dog attack. Yeah. When they are set upon by, by the Cajuns, Rottweilers and my God, that, that, I mean like. That's their animal budget. I mean, look, look, I mean, well, and, and there's, there's, there's another very prominent live animal that, that we'll get to later yes, in yes. in the film. But, but really like, look, I, I think part of why Southern comfort for me has always just been such a, such an amazing bit of cinema is sort of like how many different genres are sort of like folded into this movie because yes, as much as it is, as it is tied into like the idea of like a war film, like the, the combat film, the men on patrol, you know, or, or a survival film. Like this movie is, is always kind of been for me a horror movie. I mean, and, and that element, you know, is, is handled like so masterfully. And yes, in, in part because there is this kind of like otherworldly quality to like how these men are being killed by these unseen Cajuns, you know? I mean, they're, they're basically like Jason Voorhees or fucking Michael Myers, the way they just kind of like seem to be always one step ahead of them and, 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 you know, executing them in, in excessively like brutal ways. You know, they aren't Mm -hmm. just getting shot. As you mentioned, there's traps, they get attacked by dogs. They're being like, like murdered, not just killed, you know, they're being murdered. And it really is like a, at times like shockingly violent movie. Because there's a lot of murder with showmanship, you know, because not only are they being killed, they're also being, they're being hunted by hunters. They're being hunted by hunters. And even then there's a moment where after they've laid some of their fallen soldiers to rest, they're brought back up for display. The Cajuns bring out the bodies and create like a display, grotesque display of them hung up in these, in the swamp. Yeah. They're not, they're not, again, they're not just being like killed. These guys are being fucking punished for what they did. And, and, and they, the, the Cajuns want them to know that, you know, it isn't just that they're trying to get this over with. They're actually trying to, to take their time with it, not just to, to kill these guys, but to brutalize them and above all terrorize them psychologically. There's some shots of the hunters running that I I need to go back and look at it because I think if I'm not mistaken, there's some like clever stuff where like you see them just like pass by a tree really quickly. And in some of those, I was thinking like, did they just repeat 
the same exact shot and pretend it was two shots on purpose to give it like that kind of feeling. I swear to God they do that, but I got to check the record. Yeah, uh, but it feels like that. <laughs> no, at for any sure. Rate. And, and like that's what he wants us to feel. Like, wait, did I see something? Did I just see that? And I, I think there's also this element of, you know, we think we know what the Cajuns look like, but we get glimpses and flashes of guys that we haven't yet seen. So we also have no idea how many are actually out there and 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 doing all this you know is it is it 3 is it 4 is it 5 is it a dozen like good grief we have no way of knowing and 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 Walter Hill wants us to be in that same sense of of uh, discomfort and paranoia i mean there's also just a lot of shots where a guy is convinced he sees something, but there's nothing there. And and we do that strange thing where we start squinting at the image to be like, I know there's something in those fucking trees, but this time there isn't, you know? But there is. <laughs> yeah, Dave Robichaud's not the only one having visions on this week's double feature, <laughs> that's for sure. But, you know, to your point, Andy, earlier about the sort of like trans war connection or the sort of like timelessness. I thought in, in many, many places this time of Fuller's Fixed Bayonets, a great Korean film, and one in which the paranoia is very high because it's a retreating unit. They're getting picked off one by one by the unseen Korean enemy. Um, and yeah, and then of course, you know, at a certain point, uh, the, the guy in charge, Casper, the staff sergeant who has assumed command, uh, he goes fixed bayonets, you know, for real, when he's like losing his mind and charges them totally carelessly, as if he was John Bell Hood uh, in the Civil War, yeah. you know? Yeah, and, and that, you know, and that's like, to me, where so many of the elements of like what he is trying to do with war films and with war uh, more generally speaking, you know, the ways that he's trying to sort of like pervert it, twist it, play with it, make it uh, something kind of like gross and disgusting and empty and pathetic, whatever you want to say. You know, it's like, it's that. It's, it's an empty bayonet charge, you know, into, you know, nothingness or a hail of gunfire, you know? But even like just the idea of of blanks, the fact that they're they're shooting blanks, and at some points in their desperation, they just start firing their their blanks at the Cajuns. Obviously, they're not going to hit anything, but but maybe they think, oh, the the sound of the gunfire will keep their heads down for a second. I think is a more you know to me that's where I will go with the idea of a of a Vietnam allegory. The the numbers have been like well documented, like. Throughout the Vietnam War, like as a whole, like we fired in that conflict more ordnance, just us, just the United States of America. We fired more ordnance during the Vietnam War than all the armies of World War II combined. And look what it got us. And all that gunfire, all that American firepower comes up with nothing, you know, doesn't solve anything, doesn't get them out of their predicament. I think for me, like, 
those moments of the film, yes, like I, I am fully on board with again of being like, oh yeah, it's like Vietnam. Look at that. We we shot off a bunch right. of guns and we didn't do shit. We didn't hit anything. You know. You bringing up before to this idea of you know the treacherousness of man and and in this film superseding that of nature at times that like man is more dangerous than than wildlife. There are so many members of the regiment that that do behave like animals, especially when they steal the the canoes at first with just like total disregard. But I was really struck on this viewing with Powers Booth and thinking about him as he relates to uh, Rovishow in, in The Electric Mist, at least someone who is actively considering the moral weight of everything that is going on and then eventually reaching a boiling point because of that disgust. I thought his placement in the film, of course, in direct contrast with Fred Ward, who was one of the more vile members, you know, (laughs) just like as a fellow soldier, one who is extremely brutish and crude. And that obviously pushes Powers Booth over to the edge to the point where he does confront him physically um, and killing him (laughs) eventually. But I was like thinking about Powers Booth as this observer throughout this film, someone who was trying to ground himself in time and place because he was understanding the moral severity of everything his fellow soldiers were doing. Well, you know, I hear I hear what you're saying there. I, I think, though, to that specific point, you know, to me, more of the, the odd observer character in this group is Keith Carradine as, as Spencer. Like, mm-hmm. Powers Booth's character is so much more, like, practical. He's the guy that's trying to be like, look, you fucking idiots, like, we just gotta go here, we gotta do this, you know? And Keith Carradine is kind of this weird... You know, like, you know, this group of men, like we have all these different kind of like archetypes on a certain level. Like, yeah, Fred Ward is the the aggressive macho guy, you know, the guy who does sneak in his own live ammo. That's one of the only things that at a certain point seems to give them any kind of hope is that he brought in like one box of ammo that they they distribute, you know, I think every guy gets like two, <laughs> two bullets, two actual bullets. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have, we have like Stucky, this like guy with a gold tooth, very prominently displayed. Who's just like total Southern swamp trash. We've got Sims, right. Who's the, the drug dealer in the group, you know, the brought the, a J along for the maneuver. Yeah. You know, um, we've got all these like sort of like oddball, you know, characters who, who all kind of have their own like deficiencies. And then we have Keith Carradine as Spencer, who's like the educated one. Well, I guess Powers Booth character is, is two. They're like the two educated guys. Well, the, I think the difference is Harden Powers Booth is, you know, he's an outsider because he's from Texas and because he's been transferred, but yeah, he's been to college and Spencer as played by Carradine is kind of like a Southern aristocrat type. He knows a lot, you know, he is this kind of like court jester and philosopher. So yeah, they, they kind of keep having like sidebars throughout. I kept, I kept writing in my notes, like sidebar Spencer and Harden, you know, because they are the ones who are, you know, discussing the larger contacts and implications for what to do and what's going on. Because yeah, we've got, you know, the cowardly staff sergeant pool, right. Uh, I mean, it's just, so yeah, they all are these like certain, certain types and, and obviously 
But yeah. I gotta, I yeah. gotta just say, Go you know, of all the types, <laughs> yeah, here of we all go. the guys, you know, <laughs> the guy among guys, my abs. I mean, really, the 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 best guy in this movie is Coach Bowden. <laughs> I mean, this guy. I mean, that's really where I, I, I was like, oh my god, this was like orders was like our movie that Marsh and I made, our weird, you know somewhat supernatural war film or whatever, you know, our fever dream of guys lost in a hopeless landscape. Uh, like I think the character of Bowden in this film is really the thing that pervaded like our movie so much subconsciously, you know, like yeah. rewatching it and seeing this just total, I mean, these guys are idiots and they're jerks and they're, they're, they're fools, but Bowden and that guy's performance, I mean, that is that is out there, like in in the best way possible. He's so fucking funny. Yeah, he's the one that truly is entering the heart of darkness. You know, that guy just completely losing his mind, painting himself with a red cross across his chest after blowing up one of the Cajun's shafts. That'll teach him to fuck with us. Yeah, right. Can't argue with that. What are you doing, Bowden? Went and blew the shit out of everything. Well, I do what I do. What'd you paint the cross in your chest for? It's part of the joke. What joke? It's a corporal joke, Private. Oh, what the hell, Bowden? You dumb son of a bitch. You just blew up all the supplies we captured. All the guns, the ammo, and the food. Casper. Comes a time when you have to abandon principles and do what's right. With all these like goods in there too. I mean, they find a bunch of dynamite, but they're like, "Oh, look, all these provisions. Yeah, there's guns, just, like, there's ammo, yeah, there's food, they, they everything they would need." And and this guy, so shook from the encounter on the river or the bayou, uh, yeah, he just completely loses it and makes a Molotov cocktail and blows up a house with like total overkill and to their detriment. But I gotta say. He's shell shocked for a reason, right? Which is that he, uh, he, he, you know, he didn't take well to uh, their sergeant getting just completely fucking domed by a <laughs> <Yeah>. shotgun <laughs> in the canoe, and he's the first one that that jumps out of the canoe, and everyone blames him later. But he's like, I mean, I admired Sergeant Poole very much. Yeah. <laughs> Blew his fucking like, brains out. I love it too because he's like his character is that he's like a he's like a football coach because that's the thing these are national guardsmen so it's it's it, it comes up at several points that these guys all have other jobs they're they're weekend warriors these aren't you know seasoned veterans. You got one for me. Me? You mean us, don't you, brother? What's happening here? Huh? Hey, boy. <laughs> the purpose of the national guard is to keep you darker brothers away from decent southern women. However, in the spirit of the New South, I have made full arrangements. What about you, Harden? I got a wife. You can count me out of this one. I suppose you're used to a little more serious soldiering over in El Paso, huh? We had things organized. All we did is watch a ball game on TV. Shoot dice and sleep. Now, Louisiana Guard's a little different. They have us out doing really important things like beating up on college kids and tear gas and niggers. Oh, please, Mr. Guardsman, no more canisters. Don't set the shepherd dogs on me. 
see what I mean? We have a long, noble military tradition. There's only two guys in the unit that, you know, have been in combat in the army. You know, Fred Ward's character and Sergeant Poole. Of course, Sergeant Poole being the most decorated, the most experienced, and of course, he's the first one fucking killed. But, but Coach is a high school football coach and my god all the like little football shit dude three and seven last year dude i love it his his sidebar with sims when he catches sims smoking the joint you know and what does he say to them like say man i'm on century you want to hear some of this stuff how can you smoke that crap i ain't on your team coach god damn right you're not you couldn't make the squad that stuff kills your will to win how your boys do this year this was a rebuilding year we had injuries to keep personnel. We finished three and seven. What do you do for a living anyway? I pick up a little cash pimping in there, but most of what I turn over come from selling dope to high school kids. You're goddamn lucky I don't believe you. No, it's true. Some of my best customers are at Fremont High, and they were tending on this year, Coach. I don't have to listen to this bullshit. You know, like, dude, he is just so fucking... Uh, so funny to me. Like I just crack up. Everything he says is is just deranged. I like when he's completely lost. You know, like he he's even further retreated into his own psychosis, and they decide like we just got to tie him up. And then he just kind of like is politely tied up for the last like thirty minutes of the movie, like moving with everyone, running with everyone doesn't say a word just this large man tied up and being towed around with them and the dead body of the sergeant for a significant chunk of the movie Dude, these guys are fucked <laughs> <laughs> they're so fucked this fucking group man just bringing up football reminds me of tommy lee jones and just him being such a, a strong man a strong football man you know because you you brought up before like his policing skills and the way that he he really takes some people down in this movie i keep thinking about that amazing scene when he's going after a particular pimp a man named brown at the bus station and he sets it up in a way where over the intercom they're gonna let this man know that he has a phone call at one of the pay phones and this is while this pimp is like you know he's being extremely predatory to two young women who are like clearly transients you know and he's gonna bring them under his spell and tommy lee jones kicks the shit out of that guy so much that he shits his pants which i thought was like an amazing touch to like if we had any doubt of like the the intensity and strength of tommy lee jones like yeah i would also probably shit my pants if that guy started like beating beating me up he's so calm at times but he is like so deceptively powerful you know? Yeah, and again, you know, I think it's one of the things that that surprised me rewatching it is just the simmering, the simmering violence that is just like lurking under the surface uh, in his in his performance that does at times like like really like shock you when it when it when it emerges because he does seem like this this gentle man this this family man this guy who's concerned about people's well-being but then yeah in that scene you're describing i mean he pistol whips the shit out of that guy brutally like roughing him up and again like i i 
I, I can't help but but see the the kind of the swampy, murky connection to like policing in the South, because we do have this white cop brutalizing a black man, you know, like without really caring much for the man's rights at that particular moment yeah, in time. No kidding. You know? And again, I think that that feeds into his character's self-loathing that he is always, always, always working to, to deal with. He's trying to work through it because, you know, I think the implication is there that, that he has not always been a good man, a good family man, a, just a nice detective in this sleepy town, you know? Yeah, Tavernier talked about about this and what he really loved about Robichaux is, yeah, he's complex, he's contradictory, he's all these things. And he specifically, you know, said he has dark, somber streaks that make him complex and very human. When he has explosions of violence, he feels guilty about them. He suffers remorse. And that idea that pervades his like every waking hour, this guilt of Vietnam, this guilt of being an alcoholic and whatever he, he got up to, you know, uh, in those days. I mean, uh, it's, yeah. And then, and then they make this film and invent a scene where Tommy Lee Jones who wrote the scene, explains understanding. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. When they're fishing? Yeah. Yeah. Tommy Lee Jones wrote that scene? He did, and it is not at all in the American version. I, I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, the things he says are so remarkable to the point that Bootsy, his wife, played by Mary Steenburgen, says, like, are you still tripping on LSD? Because the shit you're saying is out of this world. Yeah, smokes man, weed once, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's that? Salamander. When you reel him in through the water, his little legs and tail wiggle like he was swimming. Makes the black bass hungry. How would you define the idea of understanding? Well, it's knowing something and knowing what it means. I think there's two ways of looking at the idea of understanding. One is, if you don't look, you never will see. And the other is, if you look a little less, you might see a hell of a lot more. You might not be over those drugs they put in your drink. Do you think that wad of rubber latex there that conceals a fish hook understands that it's really a salamander? Or do you think that salamander understands that it's nothing more than a water rubber latex concealing a fish hook. Jesus, Dave. I don't know. Ask a black bass. I know General John Bell Hood of the Texas Cavalry just like he was my own grandfather. Yeah, just Tommy Lee Jones fishing and like 
just reflecting on the idea of what understanding is. Like I could watch a whole film or even just like a web series of that. Just Tommy Lee Jones, like thinking and having these musings while he's out on the water, you know, that's incredible that he wrote that scene, that that was something he's like, this has to be in the movie. Dude, the LSD philosopher scene. And I think it's, I think it's, I guess, uh, maybe, maybe poignant that I'm just look thinking about where it is placed in the structure of the film now, because that scene proceeds when he goes to see, uh, Twinkie Lemoyne, played by Ned Beatty, who I don't think we've seen since Mountains of the Moon, but <laughs> always a fucking treat to see Ned Beatty. And Ned Beatty's uh, character, Lemoyne, runs a, a sort of like sugar empire uh, in the area. And it's alluded to that, yes, he also runs sex workers. And, and so again, after the scene of where Dave is like, what is understanding? Like, what is knowing something, you know? And he has this very, like, you know, things aren't as they seem kind of, like, approach to it. He immediately goes to a man he knows to probably be guilty of something, specifically the murder from the 1960s, the lynching of the black man, Prejean, in the swamp. Yeah, Ned Beatty's presence in the movie, I've gone on record before saying I hate when a movie says, like, guest starring this person, because to me in a film it doesn't make any sense. They're just in it. They're not a guest. Uh, but his role in this movie, as small as it was, but how much you feel his presence as a man named Twinkie, <laughs> that was like a guest starring Ned Beatty yeah. <laughs> performance, which I really loved. Yeah, the impish the impish sugar man, uh, who's, <laughs> yeah. who's also trying to tie himself into the film production as well in a yes. very amusing moment when uh, it's very clear he's invested in this film as well just to get laid, basically. <laughs> I love that, dude. At the party when he's, like, dancing with some, like, 22-year-old blonde. Amazing. Right. <laughs> this doesn't necessarily need to be in the episode because I maybe just missed a detail. Did they ever explain, like, explicitly what happened when there were those muzzle shots and Tommy Lee Jones was being fired at at yes. night. They do, was it blanks? Cause I thought that was, yeah, it was, they were blanks. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a funny connection between the two. Movies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Arbitrary, but you know, something there. <laughs> I think, I think that's a cool scene too, because it's like Robichaud leaves a bar, uh, and, and is appeared to have been fired on and he returns fire and there's a dead woman in the car and it's this whole thing, but it's like obviously a setup. And I was mm -hmm. just thinking like, ah, movie magic, you know, a flash yeah. of lights. Like, oh. again, I think thinking about how Tavernier is thinking about it, I think there's a connection there that he's playing with about cinema and perception and trickery and lights and, you know, that kind of thing uh, that's embedded into it. Oh, yeah, and then I like the idea that it's maybe implied that they got that gun from the film set. You know, a gun loaded with blanks. I think it could be implied. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about this movie is there's still room to to connect things because, like, not everything is explained in this movie, and I don't know. I don't know how you know how close to the end we are here, so I don't necessarily want to like question uh, the wrap-up <laughs> of this movie, but I don't think it's a hundred percent satisfying. And I again, I you know. 
this is a French film after all, right? So, uh, especially in this cut. You know. See, to me, it's 100% satisfying because it's not 100% well, yeah. satisfying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but again, I think it's like it speaks to the to, to like why this film has two very distinct disputed versions. I mean, that that you have Tavernier who who is interested in doing certain things. And then you have an American producer who's going, no, 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 <laughs> like this is all wrong. Like it's a cop and there's a crime and that's what people are here for. And Tavernier is like, listen, no, like. They're going to be here for the moment where Tommy Lee Jones explains understanding, you know, like they're, they're, they're going to be here for, for that, for the spaces between the way he says cherry LeBlanc. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that's it. I mean, cause it's not, this movie isn't about like, uh, how we're redeemed by, by finding a young girl's murderer. Like, that's not what the film is, is most concerned with. Uh, the film is, is, is much more concerned with, like, just people and how people interact and, and treat each other and how we treat ourselves. I mean, it's, there's so much in this version this time around, I, I felt like that was, um, you know, like there was just so much more time spent to his interactions with Elrod, you know, and like seeing this alcoholic actor and, and trying to sort of like help this guy come to the realization that he has a problem. You know, it's like, you said it's like, there's like sort of like two investigations, but it's like, there, there's also this whole huge subplot that's just devoted to like all the times Elrod just shows up shit faced and yeah. Tommy Lee Jones has to, to sort of like take care of his ass, you know, and, and try to lead him to a conclusion for himself, you know, not beat him over the head with it, not drag his ass into an AA meeting, but you know, just kind of explore choices, the choices that we all make and the choices that he has made that he regrets in his life. And it's, it's a very caring depiction of humans sort of like colliding and, and, and coming into contact one, with one another over well, like 140 years or something like that. You know, it's like, it's all there. It's all there. Yeah, he even lets him go on multiple DWIs because the paperwork is a bitch, you know? Yeah. He's just like, <laughs> why don't you help me solve some murders and I won't write you any tickets, you know? Uh, and that's sort of how it begins. But yeah, it's a really like tender portrait of that, you know? It's, uh, it is very moving. And of course, it can only end in tragedy when, uh, just like in Southern Comfort, a shot out of nowhere, uh, you know, kills the actress on accident because they think it's Robichaux. And then Dave, Dave has more guilt uh, that's like, you know, laid on uh, as it as it heats up, you know? Yeah, it's, it's like, how do we form these bonds with other people and appreciate the world around us while reckoning with the violence of the world, you know? I mean, I kept thinking even about Cormac McCarthy while watching this movie mainly because again it's coming off the the tales of no country for old men and Tommy Lee Jones is in a similar you know reflective mood in his performance 
But it shows how much he brought to that role in No Country for Old Men 2 because of what he wrote for in The Electric Mist, you know? But it is, that seems to be a preoccupation of his, like with all of that guilt, like where do, how can we find peace when there is so much violence in the swamp? I mean, that to me, that the, the swamp itself seems to represent the violence of the world and the violence done to the land in, in The Electric Mist. Speaking of violence done to the land, I think we would be remiss not to point out Tavernier's uh, inclusion of Katrina as an element of the film, which, of course, is not in the novel, which came out before then. And he has, you know, little touches here and there of Bootsy being involved in hurricane funds and building a house. And then we get uh, a montage of destroyed homes and destroyed lands, you know, from this event and uh, puts a little jazz under it because lest we forget uh, Tavernier, a a great lover of American jazz, even made a whole damn film about it called Round Midnight. Uh, So another obvious connection of like, why is this French guy like making a movie in New Orleans? Because he fucking (laughs) loves jazz, you know, obviously. And, you know, both of these movies really delivered when thinking about music for me, whenever I want to watch, you know, something set in Louisiana um, and especially in the swamps of Louisiana, I'm looking for a pig roast. I'm looking for a crawfish broil. And that's something that occurs in both films and is, you know, especially a wild moment. Uh, It's more of like an aside in, in the electric mist. There's an early pig roast, but it takes center stage during the 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 final chunk of southern comfort there is this remarkable sequence where there's so much joy and celebration as Keith Carradine and Powers Booth the two remaining living soldiers are taken into this just like a, well, you wouldn't call it a village or a camp. What would you call it? Just a Cajun enclave. Yeah, they're taken to a Cajun enclave, a community, and they're having a big celebration. They're having a pig roast, and there's so much joy, and there's so much, you know, wonderful Cajun music. We have like real musicians. The zydeco like, is flowing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But that, coupled with the paranoia, that is just driving powers booth insane that contrast of celebration and fear it is i mean it's a it's a fantastic climax for the film yeah and again like if you go back to the the sort of like the vietnam allegory or you know just the 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 american imperial uh sort of nightmare that that walter hill is kind of playing with like his paranoia is rooted in the fact that uh for, for him now, at, at this point, you know, Powers Booth, you know, can't help but look at every single one of these Cajuns as potentially a threat. You know, in the same way that, that you could imagine soldiers in Vietnam started to, to look at every Vietnamese person they saw as as potentially Viet Cong or or US cavalrymen could 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 no longer look at, at the indigenous peoples of America as as anything other than a, a target, a threat, something to be to be dealt with uh, with hostility and fear and, and distrust. And, but I, I really want to say too in that in that climax of the film, that that closing at the, the Cajun Enclave, like God damn, you know, I, I, I love Walter Hill. I think Walter Hill is 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 amazing, but but that in his entire filmography is one of the most 
amazing, breathtaking, uh, intricately constructed sequences of anything he's ever done, where we're 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 cutting to so we're cross cutting to so many different uh, feelings and things. Look at those two guys. What two guys? Getting out the boat. Yeah. Think they're the ones that've been after us? Hell, I don't know. I never seen them. I think it's them. Don't go getting paranoid on them. I got reason to be paranoid, and so do you. They gotta kill us. We're the only witnesses. Don't sweat it. They can't pull anything here in front of everybody. pigs being slaughtered and gutted. You have people celebrating and dancing and smiling and laughing. You have Cajun, you know, <laughs> Cajun murderers hunting Powers Booth and, and Keith Carradine, and they're, they're fighting like tooth and nail with knives and bayonets and rifles desperately in the corners amidst all this celebration and animal butchery. I mean, it is like, it's everything. It's like a, a John Ford barn dance, a, a, a Peckinpah, like, ballet of violence. It's, it's like all coming together and like a special shout out to his editor, who he's pretty much worked with his entire career, Freeman Davies, because holy shit, that sequence is a masterclass of editing it's like walter hill invaded a less blank movie you know yeah. like it's it's everything you said it is on top of that you know like it is long too and i think that's where a lot of its majesty comes from is it puts them in this place and then draws it out and it is uh I can't call it excessive because it's perfect, yeah. but it, it just keeps going and it just keeps building and it keeps building. It's I mean, relentless. Yeah, it's really magnificent. And the songs are amazing, you know, as all this is happening. And even just mm -hmm. some of the snippets, like uh, in the background, an old woman just like dumping hot sauce into a giant barrel or a guy stirring the crawfish in a giant barrel with an oar. Uh, all these little details, all these touches. And then, yeah, Keith Carradine just like munching at the buffet, dancing with a woman <laughs> being like, hey, these people are pretty great, you know, except for the ones trying to kill us. But like everyone else is is, is cool. Yeah. And then Powers Booth, you know, uh, who we sort of thought uh, was the the educated man, the moral man. But then, you know, he shoved a knife into uh, one of his buddies' uh, stomachs, you know? So, like, he's he's crossed the line. He's cracking up. He's seeing 
you know. Well, for him everything. at this point now, it's it's like everything is broken down, and it's it's only about survival. You know, I mean, there's even like this this strange. Yeah, he goes straw dogs, dude. Yeah, well, f- for sure, you know. Um, but like, there's even for me this like strange moment when he's there and when he thinks he sees the Cajuns, you know, the 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 really violent ones, the ones who have been hunting them. When he when he thinks he sees them arrive, he almost like just takes off on his own. He's even ready to abandon Spencer. He's even ready to abandon his buddy who he's he's traveled with. He's like that far now into the idea of like no matter what happens i am going to live i'm getting the fuck out of there but he does have that moment of being like fuck i i can't you know we've been through so much i gotta help him at least i gotta stick around for a second like i can't totally abandon him but again there is that moment where you see it in his face like should i just fucking take off like should i just get out of here but but yeah i mean he 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 certainly doesn't and it's a it's probably a good thing that he didn't, certainly for Keith Carradine anyway. Well, this is inevitably leading us to uh, two ambiguous endings. Um, the ending of Southern Comfort is notoriously uh, open-ended, I think, uh, something that everyone remembers. I think maybe many people, certainly at the time, uh, found it to be uh, underwhelming, let's say. Uh, and then in in the Electric Mist, we have Robichaux bringing to the fore, you know, the the past and and solving, you know, connecting all the pieces of this lynching that he witnessed as a child, uh, and then also, you know, finding a prime suspect uh, in the the serial murders of the sex workers that has been going on. And I don't necessarily want to spoil it because uh, again, the movie's not really about that anyway. Yeah. Um, but my feeling after watching the, the, the movie and watching the Tavernier cut is uh, I feel like those murders may not be solved question mark, you know? Um, so I think that's something that's interesting and in, in whether or not you guys had that feeling because it's sort of like the, you know, Dave's past is reconciled, like that sort of sorted out mm-hmm. and you presumably have a great suspect. It's just like not really proven in any way, in any way, shape or form and then the movie ends. Right. It's an odd form of justice, you know, which I thought was really odd because they have the the FBI agent who's tagging along for a lot of this. And she's not particularly resistant to Tommy Lee Jones's Robichaux's version of justice. I mean, she'll comment Dude, on the it. The FBI is like the most corrupt institution <laughs> in America. She's <laughs> down with everything, right. you know? <laughs> that's true. No, that that's a very good point. She did seem like somewhat by the book. I guess, you know, her character almost felt like she didn't even need to be in the movie. She seems like something that just transferred over from the novel. And Actually, uh, it it does connect a little bit more to Tavernier's sort of like, I think his own flourishes um, because she's actually there to investigate corruption associated with the FEMA response to Hurricane Katrina for her. John Goodman's been stealing the funds. Yeah. That's like the real crime. That's the federal, the federal crime. Who cares about some dead sex workers? I mean, she kind of like offers him some help with that, 
but only because she's trying to get close to Balboni and this corruption associated with, you know, misappropriation of federal funding. Yeah. Katrina response. And I think she's another kindred spirit of Robichaux's again, you know, this like Latina woman, FBI agent. And he's like, I'm going to be friends with her because I'm Dave Robichaux, yeah. you know? I reach across the aisle. Yeah. But know? I'm also like, going to show you how we do things down right. here in the bayou. <laughs> <laughs> and she certainly does uh, get a get a, a first-hand look at that, you know? And again, this different idea of justice that, that Robichaux has. But, you know, in, in speaking about the, the endings and their kind of like sort of strange, strange quality of trying to like wrap up these movies. Did either of you read about the Iranian cut of Southern Comfort? No, I did. Yes. Did you read about that? I I, did. I I had never heard this. I I saw it on fucking like Wikipedia, I think, you know, and I thought I knew everything about this movie, Uh, but apparently... Like Walter Hill has basically said, like, you know, this movie w- was not a commercial success, like anywhere, you know. And he's like, hey, and you know, usually you can be like, well, the Americans didn't get it, but they loved it in France. And he's like, no one really, when the movie came out, like, really connected with it. But apparently, they did in Iran because Iran like cut their own version of the film and added like a prologue and a, an epilogue where the whole premise in the Iranian cut was that these soldiers are being sent to this place because of their opposition to the Vietnam War and they're being punished and they're being hunted down like like Watkins Punishment yes, Park. Punishment Park. Yeah. And and in the ending of the movie, you know, like when the, the trucks arrive and you think, oh, they, they made it, here comes the army in the Iranian cut, they added in a bunch of like, gunfire as if they were like nope <laughs> the army's here and and you are not escaping and apparently this was like a huge hit in iran Hell they, yeah. they fucking love this movie in iran but i guess specifically the you know the iranian revolutionary guards cut you know yeah. so so another connection between the two film we have you know multiple versions of both with varying degrees of critical and commercial uh, fanfare yeah and you know similarly uh, tavernier's film of course uh, didn't do anything in the united states because it wasn't released in theaters and uh in in an interview i read that he was asked about this and he said uh it's showing in the rest of the world yeah, <laughs> you know, he really didn't give a shit, uh, and I think it did well in France and and beyond. So uh, he knows where his bread is buttered, and it's the uh, you know whatever French media holding company financed this uh, this film. Yeah, you know, one lingering question I have about Southern Comfort when thinking about their efforts to escape, um, there is that moment when the helicopter arrives and they're screaming at it, trying to get its attention and and flag them down. One thing. I was wondering, didn't you think they should have just like fired their blanks up into the air at the helicopter? Wouldn't the helicopter have maybe heard that? Probably not. It occurred to no. me, but helicopters make a hell of a lot of noise, you know, yeah. but still, yes, it, it did occur to me. Like, why didn't they at least try that? I mean, yeah, that, just fire up. They were shooting rounds. blanks at the cages. <laughs> they might as well have tried to 
to pop off a couple to get the helicopter's attention. But, you know, what are you going to do, really? Yeah. I mean, they yeah. were fucked any way you slice it, you know? Yeah. The minute they entered that <laughs> swamp, they were fucking, you know, dead men. Could have used some of Dave Robichaux's hollow points. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Reese's box of ammo didn't go very far at all. Man, I have to say, too, I I, I, I have this on uh, Blu-ray, so I watched the Southern Comfort uh, Blu-ray. The first time I saw this movie was as a, a child. My dad had it on VHS, and, you know, that thing was probably stepped on 27 times or whatever. But this time around, man, visually, like... That, 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 the colors of the swamp and yeah, they, they wanted them to be like very muted and kind of gray throughout, but there was like one shot, particularly near the end where their, uh, Powers Booth and Keith Carradine are walking through the section of the swamp where there is like a yellow film over the water and holy shit. I mean, this is just like, whatever, some pointless aside, but man, that looked so good. I don't remember how I didn't remember like how vivid that yellow was and how like like striking it was after so much sort of like just washed out grayness that they had been enveloped by throughout the film. It's crazy how the film does have like a kind of abstract painting quality to it just because of the texture of the swamp, you know, is very, and it's like, there's a lot of wide shots. You know, one of the reasons I love this movie, we're not just like up close with these guys trudging around, although we are quite a bit, He's going wide all the time. I mean, like half the movie is like orders, shots of guys just like passing frame left to right, you know, just like, hey, we're soldiers, you know, just passing, passing yeah. through. And I it's, mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not kidding. It's hypnotic. Like, like 90% of the movie, these guys are like up to their knees in fucking swamp water. And, and I'm sure you guys might have, you know, read you know, various people discussing the production, but like, I mean, that's what the entire production was. I mean, they like, but you know, a a credit to Walter Hill, like, you know, the actors have, uh, at least the interviews that I read, you know, we're all like, man, he kept us together through what was a very physically demanding shoot. I mean, I, I read that like, you know, one of the biggest issues they even had was like they had to like just get their takes as quick as possible because anytime they would set the camera up, it would immediately start to sink into the swamp. I mean, they're they're <laughs> out there, you know, and they were like, man, we only had like a couple minutes for before. Dude, how do you run power film? in a swamp? They have fucking electric lights <laughs> in the movie. I know. Yeah, it's a very impractical place to film a, a movie, but I love when they're set there because of that. Yeah, this is uh, two very, very murky, swampy films we brought you, Ryan. Uh, and I, 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 judging by our conversation, uh, think you were quite pleased with what we brought. But for you, are there certain films set in this particularly harsh uh, area of wilderness that, that come to your mind? Yes, I did. I did love splashing around in the swamps uh, with, with the two of you in, in both of these films. They, they did deliver on exactly what I was looking for. You know, I wanted to feel like I was being bit by mosquitoes while I was watching it, and I did. And um, there, there are two films that come to mind 
when I was thinking about swamps, one of them is one I, I very nearly picked for our episode on oil, which is the Robert Flaherty film, Louisiana Story, a, a great Bayou film that also is a hybrid documentary of sorts, where they had all of these locals uh, perform fictionalized versions of themselves while big oil is encroaching on the bayou and the territory. Um, and it's an extremely expressive and beautiful film that really does feel like an oddity from the 40s, even looking at it now, you know. Um, but then another one that I was thinking about in, in direct contrast with, uh, especially in The Electric Mist, where Bertrand Tavernier was treating the swamp and this environment with like a great deal of respect and fascination, I was thinking about Nicholas Ray being completely at odds with his experience in the Everglades when he made the the film Wind Across the Everglades. Just a man who wanted nothing to do with having to set up cameras in the swamps or, or figuring out lights, just like totally pissed off the whole time. And the result is a weird, broken movie starring Burl Ives and Christopher Plummer. And it's a unique oddity, a weird Florida Western of sorts that feels like it's falling apart that feels like it had multiple directors but i think nicholas ray's disdain and also just the inherent fascination with the location makes it for a really really interesting viewing experience so i would still wholeheartedly recommend it as as, as much of an imperfect object as it is oh yeah um but yeah so that was that was me this week marsh you're up next to provide us with a challenge what, what what is the topic for next week well it was fitting that uh, tonight as we were recording uh, we were having a little uh, internet issues for a, for a bit of the uh, episode uh, because recently uh, we and i specifically have been uh, befallen uh, by technical difficulties having a lot of problems with uh, machines these days the problem with fucking soundcloud and apple podcasts last episode when i fucked up and didn't record andy's <laughs> audio track uh we're getting cut off tonight while ryan was making really enthusiastic good points uh <laughs> we've entered our technical difficulties era we had it too easy for too long and so i want you to bring me just that however you want to interpret it movies about or deal with technical difficulties. I want to see uh, some kind of machines going wrong situation, I guess, or maybe you'll buck up against it in an interesting way. I think it's a very poetic uh, challenge, you know, technical difficulties. There's a lot of ways that can be read. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. We're going on an overnight recon and patrol. Uh, Hush up and listen up. We've been designated Bravo. That is Bravo Team, recon and security. Rendezvous point Charlie, that is Charlie, is just outside of Catahoula. And we're going to travel in fire formation with maximum use of cover and concealment. We're traveling to make time. No tents, no sleeping bags, ponchos and liners only. We're going to have all kinds of weather out there. Sun, rain, cold in the morning. 
Get used to this idea. You're going in the water. And that water's going to be cold. Pips! You with us? Oh, sure I am, Sarge. I'm really up for this. Well, that's good, because you're going to be my pace man. <laughs> Reese, you'll be point. You. Now, we're talking about 38 kilometers. Well, you make sure your canteens are filled at the water buffalo. Now, each and every member does their job. I don't want nobody dogging it out there. Y'all buddies, you're counting and depending on each other. Everybody does their job. Now, please, for once in your life, try to look like soldiers. Civilian in peace, soldier in war. I am God. Why are you leaving? It's my foolishness, son. Like you, I grieve over what I can't change. Care for your own, though. Don't emulate me. We were always honorable, but we served venal men in a vile enterprise. We're getting up. You need to stay here. Well said. Absolutely right. Say, I want you to have your photograph taken with us. Gentlemen, let's be about this business. Are we ready, boys? Attend, jump! Always amazed at what the sciences are producing these days. You won't tell me what's at hand, sir. What does it matter? As long as you stay true to your principles. Even the saints might take issue with that statement, General Hood.